back in our series in Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 4 today, so if you've got your Bible, you could open it up. Uh, we're going to be reading quite a bit of scripture, as I said. We'll have most of it up here on the screen, but it's great to have the book open to you so that you let your eyes fall on the text yourself. You could, you could Google that as well. Um, Exodus chapter 4 is where we'll be, but as you're turning there, let me just ask you to ponder this question. Have you ever been given an assignment that you complained about? It's a bit of a rhetorical question. I think everyone's been given an assignment. What's the worst assignment that you've ever been given? I think about a time when I was in high school and I had to get a summer job and me and a buddy from the basketball team, uh, one of the moms was the manager of a Rite Aid in town. That's uh, kind of like a Walgreens. If, I don't even know if Rite Aid's still in business. I think they are. But uh, it's a pharmaceutical sales store. And, uh, and so we had this job and the assignments we were given felt quite below us as, you know, big time high school basketball players. <laughs> so, you know, we'd get up early, stock the shelves, um, and we'd find ourselves constantly grumbling, believe it or not. You know, high school boys tend to be very mature and not full of themselves, but we complained about our job. One time I remember uh, we had to put, uh, we, were, we were stocking the shampoo aisle, and I said to my friend Blake, I said, Blake, we could make this a lot more fun. I'm going to go like four or five aisles down. I'll have the, the box, you be near the aisle, and you just, we had code word, you'd holler Red Hawk, and I'll lob it over the five aisles, and then you put the product away. Went pretty well for a while, but we kept pressing our luck a few aisles over. How far can we go until explosion? And um, let's just say my employment didn't last long at the Rite Aid. But what are those things that you complained about? I also thought about this week, if you've seen the movie 1917, about World War I, and this assignment that's given to these two uh, cadets, something like that, in the British Army, and they are tasked with taking a message... Um, from the British stronghold through enemy territory to a group that is about to be ambushed. And back in the day, the, the technology wasn't as good and, and communications had been broken, and so it ha- had to be hand-delivered. And these two young, really boys, were given this task. It was like a suicide mission. And that's what the whole movie's about. And they do it. And they go, and they get to the end of the journey. Only one makes it back. And the other, it's, it's, it's a very profound moment. He gets back, and he's accomplished the assignment to little or no fanfare. He's simply accomplished the task, saved some lives, at least for the moment. But this is the assignment he had been given. Have you ever complained about an assignment. Well, if you have, you're in good company. We get to read about Moses, the greatest prophet of Israel, and he complains about the assignment God wants to give him. So we're going to look closely at it. And this sermon's going to be a bit autobiographical. I get very sentimental and nostalgic on anniversary Sundays. So I'm going to talk about our story and the assignment God's given us and how it mirrors Moses's story. Now, if you remember to this point, Moses... Um, was rescued by God at birth when Pharaoh, he was living in Egypt, the people of Egypt were enslaved for about 400 years, 
in the land of Egypt, and uh, Moses is born, and at that time, Pharaoh is wanting to kill all newborn Hebrew babies, that's Israelite babies, uh, because he was worried about a revolution rising up, and so um, he, there was an edict to kill all the babies by throwing them in the Nile River. Moses' mother puts him into uh, an ark, so to speak, a, a covered basket, floats him down the river, and he's found by Pharaoh's own daughter, who brings him in and chooses to raise him as her own in the royal court. And then sometime 40 years later, Moses then murders a man, a slave master, who is beating one of the Hebrews. And and Moses, for the first time in his life, understands those are my people, and he fights back and he murders a man. And so he's forced to flee, and he flees into the desert, into the wilderness, into the land of Midian, where he ends up being taken in by a family and marries one of the daughters of the family and starts his own family. And he's quite content, and for decades upon decades, he lives this very rural, not urban, nice life. And he's got some sheep and goats that he's shepherding, and then all of a sudden, God shows up to him. There's a a bush burning in the distance, but yet it doesn't seem to be consumed. And Moses is intrigued, and so he walks near to the bush. And because he's chosen to engage this strange power, God speaks to him and says, Moses, I have an assignment for you. Your assignment is to free my people, the Israelites, the Hebrews who are enslaved in Egypt, I made a covenant with those people. I made a promise to those people. I have not forgotten, and I hear their cries against their oppressors, and I will free them, and you will be my hands and feet. So that's where we are. And two weeks ago, we talked about how God gives Moses his personal name. Because Moses says, what shall I call you when I go to the people and say, God has appeared to me? God says, go, tell them that I am what I am has sent you. Or I cause to be what I cause to be. We talked about that two weeks ago. I really highly encourage you to go back and listen to that. Because it's such an important that God is not just an idea, but he is a personal being who wants to know you in a personal relationship. And Moses gets his personal name. And so any time in your Bible where you see Lord, the Lord, in capital L-O-R-D, that's actually the personal name, Yahweh. So Yahweh is revealed to Moses, and you'd think at this point he'd be quite ready to go. He's spoken to God personally. He has his personal name. He's seen the burning bush that is not consumed. Surely he has courage. I mean, this is the greatest prophet, right? Let's see what he does next. So start with me here in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Okay, pause. <laughs> We're going to examine Moses' butts today. Plural. Not anatomy, his butts. And there are, I I find in my study of the text, nine butts that Moses gives. Uh, You know what I'm saying? But God, 
but are you sure, but you don't know me, but you don't know them, but are you mistaken, nine of them, nine excuses why Moses says, this isn't the assignment for me. So let's look at them real quick. And to do that, we actually have to go back to the text we looked at two weeks ago in chapter 3, where this string of buts begins. So start with me in verse 11. Again, this is right after God has appeared to Moses and told him what he's going to do, that he's going to take the people out of Egypt and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And verse 11 says this, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, verse 12, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God's saying, Moses, I know you're scared, I know you're fearful, but I will be with you, and I'll give you a sign. And the sign will be, you'll somehow end up right in the exact place you are now, this time only with perhaps upwards of a million others following you. So that's the first but, and God's response. I'll give you a sign. You'll end up back at this mountain. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Then Moses... And actually, if you just studied the Hebrew, it's the exact same conjunction that is used in verse 11 for but. So I don't know why the translators translated it then. It's really, but Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? You shall say to them, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, very graciously, Moses again adding a but, God says, Say to them, Moses, I am who I am. And, say, and he said to him, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my forever name. So again, Moses comes up with a but. I'm, I'm scared, I'm fearful. What if they ask me? What if they don't believe me that I've actually talked to God? God says, okay, I'll give you another sign. I'll give you my personal name, a name that had probably been forgotten to a large extent in the community but would have been remembered when, when Moses said it. That's what the fa- our forefathers called God, Yahweh. We talked about that two weeks ago. So that's the second excuse, and God very patiently, graciously saying, let me give you something to help you move past that fear. Number three, you ready? Drop down here to verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by mighty hand. Now this is God speaking. But I say it's the third but because God, knowing Moses' heart, (laughs) understands that there's a but coming. So God sort of beats him to the punch, preemptive strike, and says, but I know, I know what you're about to say, You're about to say, when I go to Pharaoh and say this, he won't believe me. God says, I know that. So, verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So God says, okay, another but. 
You're thinking, Moses, it's scary to walk into the, the most powerful man in the world at that time and say to him, let my people go. God says, he's not going to listen to you, so I'm predicting that. You're thinking about that right, but I will be with you, and I will strike wonders upon the land, and we'll get to that, the 12 plagues. So God's promising Moses because he, he anticipates the but excuse. And he says, I will bring you out, and actually as you go, you will plunder the Egyptians. Okay. So by now Moses is like, okay, I've got everything covered. Now we get to chapter 4. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. Yahweh said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, anybody that knows anything about snakes or has watched Bear Grylls, I watch a lot of Bear Grylls with Grayson, that is not how you catch a snake. You always go for the head. But God's like, trust me. And Moses, to his credit, does trust him and, and reaches out to grab the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff again in his hand. That they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So Moses is still overcome by fear. And he again says, they're not going to believe me. God gives him another tool, another sign that he can move forward even in his fear. This time he has a staff, a stick, that turns into a serpent and then back into a stick whenever he wants. We'll see Moses use that staff many, many times. <laughs> and let me just say, we'll talk about this in a second. What does God give Moses? A stick. <laughs> a stick. Like, that's funny. Like, Moses, you're going to go overthrow the greatest empire with a stick. You should be laughing. That's, like, funny, right? So you can understand Moses is like, anything else, God? And God, again, predicts that Moses will be like, you're giving me a stick. And so look at verse 6. Again, this is the next but. This is the fifth but. Again, God's anticipating. You're probably like, a stick? I'm still fearful, God. So God says, again, Yahweh said to him, put your hand inside your cloak, that's your jacket, so to speak, inside your cloak, but, and, he put, and Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous. I mean, it has a skin disease. It looked like snow. This would be terrifying. Skin disease, uh, the translation here is leprous, but um, not, not necessarily what we would call leprosy or Hansen's disease now. It's probably just some type of skin disease. He puts it into his cloak and he pulls it out and his hand is leprous. So he put his hand back, in, so he said, put your hand back inside again, Moses. So he put his hand back inside his cloak and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to you to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. Okay, so you got a stick, and now you can make yourself become leprous. <laughs> okay, but still, those are pretty cool signs. I wish I could do that right now, because then you would really believe what I'm about to say. But I can't. But Moses could. But he's still like, 
I don't know. And God, knowing his heart, anticipates another but. So here we go, the sixth but. So God said, if they will not believe even those two signs, because I know what you're thinking, a stick and making myself sick, that's not going to work. So if they won't believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, that's the Nile River, and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. A third, another sign. Wow, so now Moses has gotten a prediction of returning to the mountain. He's got the personal name of God. He's got a stick and the ability to create disease and to make it go away. And now he can turn water into blood. By this point, you're like, okay, that's probably enough for the greatest prophet of all the people of God in the Old Testament. Verse 10. But Moses, seventh but, said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. I don't talk good, Moses says. Then Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I... Yahweh, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses says, I, I'm not good at this public speaking thing. How can I be your mouthpiece? And God says, it's not about you, Moses. I made the mouth, and I'll make the mouth do what I want it to do. So now Moses is like, got to be like, okay, I get it, God. Verse 13, but Moses said for the eighth time, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. For the first time, God gets angry. Eight times Moses says, but, 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 but. And God patiently, understanding his fear and his finiteness and his frailness, has patience and mercy and grace and gives him the gifts he needs. But here, he gets angry. What changed? What changed? I'll come back to that in just a second. But even though God gets angry, look at his gracious response. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming soon out to meet you, to meet you in the desert, is how the narrative will go. You'll meet him halfway and then go in to Egypt with his brother. He'll meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand 
this staff with which you shall do the signs. <laughs> so he's pissed. God's angry. God gets angry. Did you know he gets angry? But what changes? When does fear cross the line to disobedience? There's a spectrum here. And Moses is, is, is walking along the fear spectrum. And at some point, he crosses the line. And he falls into disobedience. When does fear become disobedience? That's kind of what we're spending most of our time trying to answer today. When does fear turn to disobedience? But notice, God still acts graciously with Moses and gives him another helper, his brother Aaron. So that's number eight. And I think, this is a question mark, I think, you'll see in your Bibles there's a chapter break, or a, sort of a subheading break, but in the Hebrew, there's no subheading. This is what some person that thought they were smart put in. I think we should include the next verse as Moses' ninth attempt to get out of this assignment. Because look what happens. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are all still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Here's why I think this is where it gets personal. This is where, why I think this is a ninth attempt at Moses getting out of his calling, getting out of his assignment. We don't have the same conjunction but, so I understand why it's a break. But here's what I think is going on in Moses' mind. Maybe wrong here. Moses is like, what else could God give me? Let me go back to my father-in-law. Remember, Jethro was the head of the household, and Moses was living in his household, tending Jethro's sheep, this sort of thing. He's like, if I can go to Jethro, and Jethro says, you can't go, then that's my way out. You want to know what I did when God called me to plant this church? I went all around asking people, are you sure I should do this? Hoping that they'd forbid me from doing it. In particular, I was hoping my father-in-law would say, you need to provide for my daughter. <laughs> Go back to being an accountant. What are you going to do, start a church in Seattle? Terrible idea. I did that. I never told my father-in-law I was doing that. I was like, this is what I'm doing, Ed. What do you think? He was like, yes. Yes, I'm so for you. And I was like, stop, Ed, stop, forbid it. Stop, Ed, No. He's like, you can do it, Dave. And he's been my biggest cheerleader <laughs> to this day. I'm still waiting for him to stop. You know what he did for me this morning? He brought me a breakfast burrito to the church so that I'd have energy to preach God's word. Stop it, Ed. <laughs> this is getting ridiculous. Trying to get out of this. I think Moses was saying, let me just see if my father-in-law, who doesn't know Yahweh, might forbid this. Take his daughter off into a distant land. Maybe never see his eldest daughter again. I think Moses was trying to get out of it. And what does Jethro say? The final sign from God. Go in peace. Dang it. So Moses goes. Why, why do I enumerate all these ways? Listen. Listen. Everyone makes excuses. Everyone has fear Everyone is lazy. Everyone procrastinates with the assignments that God gives to them. Everyone. But God's not going to give up on you. 
He's going to keep giving you what you need to keep moving towards his assignment in your life. You can't, you ain't going to get out of it. You ain't going to get out, Moses couldn't get out of it. There's something that God's calling you to do in your life, and no matter how many times you say, but, God will just give you the thing you need to keep going. And if you think he's let you off the hook, you've deceived yourself, and you're living in disobedience. And it's angering to God, because he will give you what you need to move, even in your fear, even in your doubt, even in your disbelief, towards the assignment that he's given to you. And Moses is a great example of that. Nine times he complained to God and said, you've got the wrong guy. And nine times God was gracious to give him that thing to keep him moving forward. So let's try to answer the question, though. Because it's okay to be fearful, because it's okay to be scared, but it's not okay to be disobedient, when does fear cross the line to disobedience? Because we see it in Moses' story. Doesn't mean that God smites him right in the moment, but he gets angry and then gives him even more gifts to help him move forward. So when do we cross the line? Let's look at it again, verse 14. Moses says, actually verse 13, but Moses said, verse 13, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Okay. So, to try to figure out what changed at verse 14, we've got to look at the fears, the main fears, at least in chapter 4, that Moses was dealing with. Because I think a lot of us have these same fears. So let's enumerate these fears. The first fear that I see here is the fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. Moses says, they won't like me, they won't believe me, they won't trust me, they won't follow me. I don't want to be rejected. Send someone else. And what's God's solution? See, he doesn't say, Moses, you're being irrational, they will follow you. God says, okay, I understand I get it. Here's my solution. I'm going to give you a staff that turns into a snake. I'm going to give you a hand that can become leprous and then be healed. I'm going to give you water that can then be turned to blood. I understand the fear of rejection, Moses. It doesn't disqualify you. It just means I'm going to need to give you a little assistance. And he gives it to him. Now, each of these signs, this is important, has to do with what? That God, Yahweh, Moses' God, is the God of life and death. You see, a serpent in ancient times was both the symbol of life and death. We understand the death part because we're terrified of snakes. Just ask my wife. We understand that. But it was also a symbol of life. So the staff, even though he's like, you give him a stick? (laughs) Give Give him a tank. Give him something. Don't give him a stick. But actually, God's saying, nope. In this simple sign, I will show that I'm the God of life and death. But i got to give you another one. What's the hand turning to leprosy and then being healed? God is the God of life and death. Sickness and healing. He has power over that. And then the third, water to blood. What is blood? Blood in ancient times was seen as life. It was the sign of life. So God's saying, I can bring life out of nothing and I can take life away. I am the God of life and death. And I'm with Moses. See, it's more powerful than just a stick. 
It's that the God of life and death is with us. When you're feeling the fear, when you're feeling the fear of rejection, it's good to know that the God of life and death is with you. In my own story, I, I had a severe fear of rejection. My whole life I've had a fear of rejection. If you have a fear of rejection, do not plant a church. Do not be a pastor. And definitely don't do it in Seattle, Washington. It is the worst place if you have a fear of rejection. Unless the God of life and death is with you. I remember, part of my story is, um, I was, uh, most of you know I was a CPA. I was working for a big accounting firm. And I liked how practical and commonsensical accounting was because I like to make sense. You probably hear me say it in my sermons. Does that make sense? You ever hear me say that? That's my accountant. Does that make sense? Have I explained the way things are? Have I tick marked so that you understand where this account receivables are coming from? This is what I do. I want to make sense because I fear you rejecting my explanation of things. And so I had been called out of that by God and into a life of ministry. And always, I was already sure of that. And I, and I was already in seminary, just theological master's program, basically, to study to be a pastor. I'd already, in one sense, given up the idea that anybody would look at me as rational, intellectual, or make any sense. I'd given that up because I said, I'm going to be a pastor. And most people think of Christianity as nonsensical or irrational it's a leap of faith. And I'm sitting in seminary, and God, knowing my heart, knowing my fear of rejection, knowing my, my fear of being seen as anti-intellectual, the very first thing that he did for me was introduce me to a book by J.P. Moreland in my very first class in seminary called Loving God with All Your Mind. And this book blew me away. Here, I had a philosopher explaining to me how rational, logical, sensical the Christian worldview was. And then in my very first class at Denver Seminary, God brought into my life a professor who had his PhD in philosophy from University of Oregon, who had done many years of ministry in Seattle, and he's now teaching at Denver Seminary. His name's Douglas Grotheis, and he's a Christian philosopher. And week after week after week, he convinced me that it's not just that I believe this in my heart on this sort of strange faith level, but that my mind doesn't have to be turned off to be a Christian. In fact, the Christian worldview is, when put up against all other worldviews, just as, and I believe, more logical, consistent, coherent, existentially livable than any other philosophy or worldview that's out there. Guess what that was? I'd already decided, I'd already said yes to God's assignment, but I was living in fear, and God gave me what I needed to now walk forward in confidence. That was my staff, and he gave it to me. Fear of rejection's real. Ask God to give you what you need so that you can walk forward with less fear. The second fear that Moses seems to have is the fear of failure. See, rejection and failure are different. Failure is, I just actually can't do it. Rejection is, nobody else believes I can do it. So Moses both thinks people might reject him, 
It's like a social fear. The other is a fear of failure. That's like an internal um, ontological fear. I mean, I'm not enough. Both powerful fears. I'm not smart enough, clever enough, funny enough. I'm just not enough. God's solution for Moses is what? Confirming. You are not enough, Moses. You're thinking rationally, logically, sensically. You are not enough. But I am with you. And if you don't think I'm enough, even though I am, I'm going to give you Aaron, your brother, as a helper. You see that? You think... Even though God had already said, I'm with you, I made the mouth, I'll give you what you need, though you think you're not eloquent enough, he still gives him a human helper as well. God, God's grace is abundant. And he will give you helpers, assistance, people to come alongside you when you're feeling the fear of failure, when you're feeling like you're not enough. In one sense, you aren't enough. Another sense, you are if God, the God of life and death, is with you. But even then, he'll give you other things, comrades like Ryan Farrell, to come alongside you and help you in your fear. Now listen, that fear hasn't gone away for me. That's why I keep celebrating birthdays at Sedaris, because I'm like, I made it! We made it! Another year! That's okay. But God has kept me from crossing the line into disobedience. He's kept me. He's kept me. He kept Moses, even though Moses tried to deny. So one of the ways that you can overcome a fear of failure or fear turning to disobedience that I learned a long time ago is to say your assignment out loud. So as soon as Moses told Aaron, his brother, as soon as Moses told Jethro, there's something that happens when you speak the assignment of God out loud. Now Moses could have kept this whole experience to himself that he had with the burning bush and not told anybody, and he could have lived his whole life hiding from it. But there's wisdom in speaking out loud what God has called you to. Because once it's out loud, then the people that God's already set up to assist you can help. And I've learned that lesson so many times that for a long time when God gives me an assignment, I keep it to myself for fear that if I say it out loud, then I'm accountable to it, which is the exact reason why I should say it out loud. So here's how you practice. Tell your best friend, your wife, your husband. Tell me, tell Ryan, tell somebody what you feel God is calling you to, what the assignment is, because then God can work through his network of saints to give you the help you need to overcome the fear of failure or the fear of rejection. But you've got to say it out loud. What does it seem that God's calling you to and assigning to you right now? God has a solution for that fear so that it doesn't turn into disobedience. So, when did Moses cross the line? Because God does get angry at Moses. So when does fear become disobedience? What changed? Let's read it one more time. But Moses said, oh my, oh my Lord. And look at there, he doesn't use the personal name of God. You see how in your Bible it's not capital L-O-R-D, it's lowercase, so he's saying, oh my master, but he doesn't call him Yahweh, please send someone else, then the anger of the Lord, see, 
Then the anger of Yahweh, now Moses is writing this years later, then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against me, Moses, is, is the way to read it, even though he's writing in the third person. So, so Moses is saying, when I said that, God got mad. What did he say? Think about it. When excuses become recusal, you've crossed the line. See, God can work with your excuses by answering with helps. But God cannot work with recusal as it's a denial of God's help. You see the difference? As soon as Moses said, but, but, I'm scared, but I don't know if I will be received, but I don't know if Pharaoh will listen to me, but I don't know if... And he said, no, 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 send someone else. God cannot work with your recusal. He can work with your fear, but he can't work with your recusal. And up to this point, Moses' posture has been one of, I'm in, but I'm scared. And so when he speaks these words to God and says, I'm out, send someone else, he has crossed that line into disobedience. And God does not like disobedience. He's not indifferent to your disobedience. He cannot work with your disobedience. You might even say God despises the shirking of responsibility. He despises it because you're denying that he has the power to help you. You're denying him. So it's okay to be scared. God can work with scared. It's okay to struggle to believe God's promises like Moses does. God can work with your doubt. But God cannot work with your absence. He just can't do it. You have to show up. Even if you're terrified, doubting, and fearful. So the scared, the timid, the fearful, the low self-esteem, even the reluctant disciples of Jesus to this day will still be immensely usable by God. Because God revels in the opportunity to remind the world of his power, his might, and his compassionate concern. Which is to say that God revels in revealing his true nature to all of us. This is when we sing the glory of God. This is what we're singing about. That God's true nature would be revealed So that's why we sing of the attributes of God. We sing of his kindness, his forgiveness, his love, his enduring patience. Because we're revealing, we're glorifying him by revealing who he is. We're not giving him something he doesn't already have. We're just peeling back so that the world might see. And God can use you no matter how slow to move you are, no matter how scared you are. He can use you because he will show his power through your weakness. So this might be, in some of your minds, recalling a very famous passage. We've got it up here on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, Yahweh crucified. 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Consider your assignment. Not many of you were wise in a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. God loves using our weakness to show off and reveal his power. So think of Moses again. That's why God gives him a stick. A stick! A stick! It doesn't even work on the playground. A stick! I've got all sorts of stick jokes, but I don't have time to give them. Stick! Could have given him a whole Midian army. Could have given the whole Midian army to come with him when he showed up at Pharaoh's palace. He didn't. He gave him a stick. Moses, or God could have picked someone else, but he picks an outcast shepherd who's a fugitive from the law. He could have kept Moses in the royal court because he was already there, and Moses could have worked from within to free his people, but he didn't. He waited until he was an outcast shepherd, old, old. Moses was so old, and says, I want to do it that way. And then he gives Moses poor oratory skill. Like God just said, I'm the God who made the mouth. Why didn't God give Moses a natural ability of eloquence? Why did he give him poor speech? Why would God do it like that? If he knew Moses was his guy, why does God act like this? Here's why. He wants, I think he wants to remove all other plausible alternative explanations for how the rescue happened. He doesn't want anybody looking back in history and thinking, well, maybe. Now, people have tried to do this to explain the plagues, to explain how Egypt was freed through naturalistic explanation. But I don't think God's left that. I think he wants us to know nothing actually really makes sense except that God, the God of life and death, was with this Moses who had a stick and could turn some water into Kool-Aid. I mean, God loves to show off his power, his glory, because he wants people to come to him for rescue. This is still happening today, friends. Most of the greatest moves of God in our world today happen where the institutional power of the church is smallest. So you think, well, the, the most powerful moves of God will happen where the church has the most social, political, economic influence. And the answer is always no. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. So if you look at the church in China, for instance, where the government is an atheistic government, and at times they've been very repressive to Christians, at other times they seem to let them, but, but the underground church in China is thriving. House church movement in China is incredible. And many reports, uh, will, well, some of the statistics are, and it's always hard to get perfect statistics on China, but that back in 1949, 
there were one million Protestant Christians in China. In 2014, that number is 49 million. I might not need to tell you the growth rate of Christianity in America is not that high. In fact, it's going the other direction. How can that be? There's no explanation apart from that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses is still alive and active. Most sociologists predict that by the year 2030, China will be the largest Christian nation in the world. Isn't that crazy? I heard a story um, about there, there's this thing that the Chinese government is, is trying to do. Some of you might know it, but it's called the Belt, uh, what is called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is basically kind of like creating from China all these transportation ports around the world sort of to make China the hub. It's called the Belt and Road Initiative. So this global infrastructure, and so there's tons of investment from China around the world. One of those places is in Africa where they'll just send hundreds of thousands of, of Chinese workers to Africa to build this infrastructure, ports and power plants, these sorts of things, um, to complete this Belt and Road Initiative. And so Kenya is a lot of Christians in Kenya, a lot of churches, healthy churches, and a lot of them run the Alpha Course, just like we do, the Alpha Course, which is an introduction to Christianity. And um, in, in this report I was reading about, the church in Kenya is asking the Alpha organization, which is based in London, to create an Alpha in Mandarin so that they can run Alpha Courses in Mandarin in their Kenyan churches. See how crazy that is? There's so many people that God is bringing from China, moving them out of China into Kenya, so that they're in the community of these Christian churches, that they're running alpha courses in the native tongue of these Chinese workers. You see, God will not be stopped. There's no way to explain what God is doing, apart from that God is alive and active. Church planting is the best way as far as we can tell, and this is one of the things that got me into it, in America, to reach unchurched people. Denominations have run studies, multiple denominations. The, the, the wisdom is this, that a church that's zero to six years old, or sorry, yeah, zero to six years old, reaches unchurched people, meaning people that weren't otherwise involved in a church at all, 60 to 80% of their new members come from that population of unchurched people. Opposed to churches that are over 10 years old, they are only bringing in new members that are part of the unchurched group at 10 to 20% of new members. What this means is that a new church plant is six to eight times, or 600%, 800% more likely to bring in, to create new life from unchurched people to church people than a church that has what? Established reputation, money, building, resource. Why is that? Another example of God likes to use the foolishness of the world to bring glory to himself. God's doing this all over the place still today. He's giving churches like Sedaris a stick... (laughs) 
(laughs) and saying, free my people. Free them from the bonds of sin and addiction, the slavery of cultural expectation, and bring them into my family, and I'll give you a stick. Just so that nobody makes the mistake of believing it has anything to do with you, Dave or Ryan or anybody, Augusta, we know it has nothing to do with us. All we've got is a stick, which is the word of God. And he's doing amazing things. And I think those statistics would hold true for our church as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful story that God's writing. And there's no way of misunderstanding what he's done here at this church as anything other than God's power of life and death over this community. And he's bringing life to this city as well through us. That's really fantastic. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Okay, so let's land the plane here, Dave. Six years of you talking. That's a lot of hours of listening for Augusta. So (laughs) what a saint she is, her and Kurt. Since five people in a living room, that's called God sending a helper, multiple helpers. So what what can we take away from this? From Moses' story, which is our story, which is God. The first is this. You can't understand what God is doing if you don't understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the prime example of God using what is viewed as weak and unimportant to save the world. God didn't make a mistake when he brought Jesus into the world to a couple who lived in a town called Nazareth. You know what they said of Nazareth back in the day? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing. And that's why so many people rejected Jesus. God would not bring him out of Nazareth, the Messiah. But God did. If you read the scriptures, that's what he always does. And guess what? Jesus didn't even have a stick. There is no place in the the scriptures where Jesus even had a stick. So God humbles us when we look at the life of Jesus, that this is who God chose to save the world. Here's the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. Now, what's the rest of the story about Jesus? The rest of the story is that Jesus, having been fully human and fully God, Jesus himself was full of fear. We know this best by the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was not free of fear. He was fully human. But he never disobeyed his father. He set his faith, face, the scriptures will say, on Jerusalem. We don't, we don't have time to read all of the scriptures, but if you just read through the book of Luke, for instance, which is one of the gospels, you'll see time and time again Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem, which is he knows his assignment. And his assignment was not just to have signs and and wonders. He performed many miracles. But those miracles were not about renewal. They were about revelation of who he was and who sent him, the God of life and death. So you read about the miracles of Jesus. They're not primarily about what he's 
healing or helping. They're primarily about revealing, I'm the one sent by God. Just like Moses had signs and wonders as the one sent by God. But Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the place he would go to die. So I'm just going to read you one of these texts. Luke 13 says this. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod, that was the king of Israel at that time, wants to kill you. And he said to them, Jesus said to these religious leaders, the Pharisees, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons, I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So Jesus was very aware throughout his entire ministry that his assignment was to go be killed to become our sacrifice, to atone for the sins of the people, to sit in our place. He knew that was his assignment, and his face was set on it, and nothing could get in the way. His disciples tried to stop him. They tried to save him. He knew his assignment. It doesn't mean he was excited about dying. He wasn't excited about taking upon himself the weight of the world, but he knew that's why God the Father had sent him. And so he never let... His fear, his human fear, it was very real, get in the way of following God's commands. This is why he's our perfect model, not Moses. Jesus is the one who never crossed the line from fear to disobedience. And he willingly walked to, the, to Calvary's cross to die in our place. So the first takeaway is we look to Jesus and we ask for Jesus' help because that's the only way we won't fall into disobedience. We need his strength and his power. And he says, I'll send my spirit to empower you. The second thing, remember this. You are not saved by the assignment God gives you. You are saved for the assignment God will give to you. Next, the size or nature of your assignment does not correlate to the size or nature of your salvation. If your assignment that he gives you is to share the gospel and good news of Jesus and what he's done with one person, your reward is the same as my reward. Your salvation is the same as my salvation. Third, you don't choose your assignment. God chooses you. For the assignment. You only get to choose if you're going to show up. Let me say that again. You don't choose your assignment. God chooses you for the assignment. You only get to choose if you're going to show up. Four. Because Jesus, God's son, chose to show up for you, for his assignment, God the Father chose him. And he becomes our Savior. So because Jesus chose to say yes and show up to his assignment given to him by the Father, we become savable, redeemable, free to choose new life with God once again. Because Jesus chose to show up. 
And we get to be like Jesus in that when we choose to show up for whatever assignment God gives to us, we get to participate, no matter how big or small, no matter how regal or raw, no matter how pleasant or painful the assignment may be, we get to be vehicles of God's grace, helping to redeem people, free people, and save people because God has let us participate in his assignment. You get to be a part. You get to be used for God's rescue plan, just like Moses. It's an amazing promise. I hope that in the next six years of Sedaris Church, you'll work through your fear, you'll ask God for help, you'll ask him to give you what you need to keep moving forward, and you'll show up for whatever God assigns you to do so that through this community, we might be a part of God's rescue plan.